It's a tough passage. Um, we've been journeying through this book, so we're kind of going chapter by chapter, and we uh, come to this today. And we've been, uh, so we're considering Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, the church that he had planted and had lived with these people for a number of months. And uh, we're, we're calling this series The Cross-Shaped Life, because what this church was coming up against was the values of the city that they lived in, of Corinth, were in direct conflict with the values of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the good, the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we feel it too. We go about our days and as followers of Jesus Christ, we see that things that we value, things that we uh, think are good, things that we think are bad, um, are often in conflict with what other people think. The things that, I, that amuse me or don't amuse me, things that um, make me angry or, or not, and uh, the things that I'm willing to tolerate and the things that I wouldn't. This is going to be different than the world, uh, um, uh, you know, outside the church. You know, Christians overall should be people who are very tolerant people. And a number of reasons for that. One is that we believe, as people of faith, we believe that every human being is created in the image of God, is a special creation of God. That every life has value, regardless of decisions that people make and how they live their life and what they've done, that there is, a, there is something sacred about human life. So we are very um, patient with people and, and, and love people. We also believe that every human being is very broken by sin, that we've inherited a sinful nature and that we also contribute with our own sin and that uh, that's not just something for some people, that's all people struggle with that. So we are very uh, patient and understanding and indeed tolerant. Uh, We also believe as people of faith that God desires that everybody would know his salvation, that they would know the forgiveness of God which we experience only because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. So we have great hope for all people. We also know that um, some will reject the message of the good news of Jesus, that some will uh, reject it as untrue or or, or not accept that uh, beautiful forgiveness that God offers. So we know that that's the reality of the world we live in. Certainly with each other, our tolerance with each other is also very high. Um, We know by faith that none of us is superior to the other. In Jesus Christ, as his word says, um, there is no male or female or slave or free or Jew or Greek. Whatever your background is, as we've all put our faith in Jesus, we stand on very level ground with one another. And we also believe by faith that every single one of us is a work in progress. So I'm a work in progress and you're a work in progress and that makes us pretty patient with each other and and we put up with a lot from each other because God's not done with us yet. And we, uh, so we encourage each other. So we should be extremely understanding, extremely tolerant and patient, but there needs to be a limit of tolerance. The notion of the limits of tolerance is actually an ecological concept. I, some of you know, in my undergraduate studies, I studied ecology and uh, the limits of tolerance is the notion that any living organism, a plant, animal, or anything living, has a certain range of environmental factors that it can live in. Temperature, the amount of sunlight, the conditions of soil, the availability of food or nutrients. And beyond those limits, the organism cannot tolerate the environment and will not be able to live or survive. So the abundance and the distribution of any living organism is bound by these limits of tolerance. It's it's a, uh, not 
everything can just live anywhere. It's a very, it's a very basic concept, but an important one. It's, it's wired into the created world. From a relationship standpoint, the, there's a notion called the paradox of tolerance, which says in any society, if a society is completely tolerant without limits, then that society will uh, uh, be destroyed or over, overtaken by the intolerant. So if you have a society that says, we tolerate any, any worldview, any you know, way of life, any, any belief, if somebody's way of life is, well, people who don't agree me, I kill and destroy, well, that society will be destroyed by um, accepting the ones who will destroy it, if that makes sense. That there, there has to be biologically and sociologically some limits to tolerance, how much uh, any group would put up with. Today, the situation, we have a situation in Corinth where there was this behavior that really this church should not have been putting up with, but they actually accepted it, or somehow condoned it. And this is an important sort of a case study for us. It's a lesson for us to help us to understand um, why it was important that they had a limit to their tolerance, um, because it was impacting them all. Our faith is not just some individualistic thing, but we live it out in the community of faith in, in the context of a church. Uh, and also there's reasons, there's really, there's good reasons to be intolerant. And we can often have the wrong reasons for, for being intolerant. Uh, we could have the, um, for being tolerant or intolerant. And we could be harsh for the wrong reasons. So this is, uh, these are not, necessarily when we come up against them, you know, black and white issues where there's just kind of one path, but it's the, it's the kind of way of living that requires faith. It requires God's wisdom to inform how we respond uh, to what's going on around us and what, even what's going on in our own hearts. So this really is for all of us. And so I want to pray as we begin and seek God in this. So Father, your word, this is your word. And we come to these texts and Confess that they can be puzzling or um, difficult for us. We pray your grace, the grace to know your, your heart, uh, to know your way. We believe your word is living and active and useful to us. And in a special way, we pray that it would certainly be so today for us as we approach it. So help us to, help us to grow and to learn, to respond in obedience to you. This time is yours. We are yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, three things today. One is um, the limit of tolerance for the sake of, this, for the, sake of the individual. Second is limit of tolerance for the sake of the community. And last is the limit of intolerance. So I'm kind of on the, on the upper end of the, the spectrum. I want to look at those three things. So first, the limit of tolerance for the sake of this person. Now, the situation is where you have a man, and it's described as he is sleeping with his father's wife. Probably not his mother, but because uh, they would have said that a little bit differently, but perhaps stepmother, perhaps the, um, the widow of the father who was not necessarily the biological mother. Either way, this is something that was strictly forbidden in Scripture. Deuteronomy 8, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus 18 lays out uh, certain standards for what is not okay 
with regards to, um, to human sexuality. And even in Corinth, so Corinth was a, a very, very permissive place. Huge temple to Aphrodite, all kinds of sexual behavior, temple prostitution. It was very well known that in Corinth, basically anything goes. But even the, here it says, even the pagans, even the people of Corinth look at this and say, this is not good. This is not a good situation. Their response in verse 2 was that they were proud. They were somehow boasting or smug about the fact that somebody in their community was living this kind of a lifestyle, and they, they were proud of it, proud of how uh, open they were and how uh, welcoming and the grace that they were extending, and look at how you know, everybody's forgiven, and, and, um, and this is not good. Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? So two, two responses that you should have. The response you shouldn't have is to be proud of this or accept it. The response you should have is, one, to be sad about it. Rather than accept it, doesn't that break your heart that somebody would choose this way? Whatever, why were those motivations even there? What happened to this man that would, would cause this sort of distortion to want to do this thing? It should break your heart. And secondly, you should, this is not something that, this isn't the kind of behavior that you can accept in your community. You need to put this person out of the fellowship of your community. Um, now we keep in mind here, this is two things up front. One is this is not a small thing that's happening. This is, this is a, a major, th- this is bad behavior, um, particularly so. And it was an active thing. It's not that this person said, oh, there's something in my past. I need to confess that I had had this relationship with my father's wife. And it's, it's, it seems to be an active thing that they're embracing. Um, so it's an active thing. It's not a small thing. And he said, you need to put them out of your fellowship. And in verse 5, it said, actually, it's, it's, in essence, handing this person over to Satan, which sounds harsh. And it is harsh. What's going on here is, in a sense, the world is the world that is broken in sin, uh, where evil and sin sort of reign, is the realm of Satan. It's the realm of the enemy. And in a sense, the church, people who uh, have put their faith in God to be restored from the brokenness of the world, to be healed and forgiven, is sort of an island in the midst of that world. That's safe, where God's presence reigns. So the church is where God's, uh, where God's presence reigns, and then the world outside of that is where Satan is at work. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the temple, that we as God's people, we are where God's presence lives in and among us. Collectively, we are God's temple. And he said, this doesn't belong in God's temple. It needs to be put outside. That's where it better fits. That's where it belongs. But the motivation in verse 5 is for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. The motivation is always salvation. It's always that this person can be saved from this condition. So the flesh needs to be destroyed. The sinful nature needs uh, needs to be put down. And perhaps... 
Perhaps if this person is, is out of your fellowship, he will feel the, the, the pain of that, the loss of the community, the, the pain of his own sin, realizing that he is lost, realizing that he's pursuing something that is not good and really not healthy, that it is indeed deviant and, and, and perverted what he's doing. Um, but the goal of that is that he would be restored, that he would know God's forgiveness, that he would know God's salvation. And that's a good motivation. Uh, but the process seems harsh, and it can seem ugly. The, but if you think about it, any restoration process can look, can look ugly at times. I had friends who were uh, renovating a multifamily house, and they wanted me to see it. I go over, and all the walls are ripped open, and there's wires everywhere, and the, there's, the, the fixtures are missing, and it was just a complete mess. And they said, well, you should have seen it before we started working on it. So, well, this looks terrible, but part of the process of making it new and making it good and safe was to tear out the old, the walls, the wires, the fixtures, and all this stuff that it could be rebuilt properly. I could picture a, um, perhaps a, a, a young person, a middle schooler, who just in the very moments right after they've gotten out of the office where they have their new braces... And they're crying, and they don't know how to talk. I don't know how to eat. Uh, and it's just this painful thing that's happened inside their mouth. But it's a process. It's, you're just seeing one part of the process. And then, of course, the senior pictures, the teeth are straight and, and white and lined up. And it's a good process, but it can be painful at times. And again, this is the heart of the gospel that. God is perfect and holy, and where there is sin, it cannot live with a perfect God. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're in this, again, it's like a perfect island of God's presence, and of everything is just harmonious. But when sin enters the picture, God has to cast them out of the garden, out of the goodness of his presence. But what does God do? As he casts them out, there's a promise of salvation. There's a promise that evil will be defeated. God clothes them, a promise of covering them and protecting them in a world that's just very now broken and disordered. But there's always the promise of salvation. And here, for this individual, look, you need to put this person out of your fellowship, but the hope is that, there, that forgiveness will be known and that salvation is available to this person. It's for his sake that you're doing this. But secondly, it's also for the sake of that community. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you can be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Is, uh, so Paul's using a couple images here. Uh, it's, it's an image of the Passover. And the Passover was a time when the Jewish people were celebrating God's salvation, God's deliverance, that he, he delivered them from death and from evil. And a lamb was sacrificed. And the blood of the lamb was, was put on, on the home to co- as a covering that death passed over those homes. And they would, uh, they would celebrate by, uh, through these... It was, prescribed in scripture that they would uh, clean the house of, of any yeast. And they, would, they were meticulous. And even to this day, if you have Jewish friends and neighbors, there's this pre-Passover uh, sort of a uh, ritual 
where you take a feather and a spoon and you go through the house and you sweep up any crumbs or anything that might have any yeast in it, any little specks of yeast, and you sweep it all up and you burn it and get it out of the house. And it's a symbol of, of uh, purity and, and, of, and of cleansing. And here he says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the ultimate lamb whose blood was shed that covers our sin. His, his, uh, his blood is our forgiveness. That's the punishment for our sins. And, and Paul's saying, you're going to, just as you would rid a house of yeast, you're going to rid your life of sin. And we're going to live with purity because, because he's accomplished this for us. So we seek to, to clean that out because a little bit of, just like a little bit of yeast will, uh, will work its way through a whole batch of dough, a little bit of sin will work its way through your own life and through a community. It impacts, it has a polluting effect on the whole community. And because of what Jesus did, we are cleansed. We are, we are made clean. And therefore, we have a motivation to not continue in sin and to continue, uh, but, to, but to pursue goodness and righteousness. Um, you know, when things are already dirty, it doesn't matter if they get more dirty. Um, but when things are clean, you don't want to dirty it. I, I go to wipe something up in the kitchen. Say, oh, don't use, that's a clean dish rag. I'm like, well, it's a rag. It's meant to clean things up. But it was a clean one. Use a dirty dish rag to clean things that are really dirty. Or for better example, um, you know, when I, I'm, I'm eating, you know, I don't take my suit off because I'm really hungry and I'm just eating lunch. You're going to get something on it. I'm like, well, it's dirty anyway. I've got to send it to the cleaner. But as soon as it comes back from the cleaner, I have a new motivation to not get anything on it, which is usually the moment when I spill something on it and coffee or whatever, because that's, that's just how life goes sometimes. But the point is this, that Jesus has um, said, look, I'm, I, I'm forgiving you. It's all clean. And, I, and I'm giving you my righteousness. Therefore, you have this beautiful motivation to pursue things that are good and pleasing to God, not things that will pollute us. So, they have this beautiful motivation, but why is this church then ignoring or condoning this, this sinful behavior? Uh, speculating a little bit, but anytime we are in a situation where you have to point out somebody else's failure, right away you know, I've got mine too. So we say things like, well, we're all sinners. You know, who are we to judge? You know, Jesus said, don't judge. Um, God loves everyone. Jesus loves everyone. And these things are true. And we isolate these true statements, but we use them as excuses to to not have to deal with it. Because the good news is if I don't have to deal with your sin, then I don't have to deal with mine either. We could ignore both, and that's a lot easier. But God is transforming our hearts. He is shaping us to be more like Jesus. And that means we have to deal with those things that, are, that need to be cleaned out. Jesus said, you're supposed to be different. You are to be light in a dark world. You're supposed to be the salt of the earth. You know, we are witnesses. There's a certain attractiveness to the Christian community and a certain goodness that's different than the world. It's supposed to stand out and be different, not just the same. And again, it's not, being, it's not being holier than thou. It's not that, oh, look how good we are. But we are so forgiven and we are so motivated to pursue that which is right and good. 
in demonstrating to a world that there is no ultimate satisfaction in sin. Maybe temporarily it'll, it could feel good or provide some temporary uh, comfort, but ultimately, no. We're only going to find that in God alone. So it's for the sake of our community that we see something like this, this ex- you know, pretty extreme example, and it needs to be cleaned out. It's for the sake of the individual. It's for the sake of the community. But lastly, there's a limit to, there's, there's two limits here to this. The first limit is, this is talking about for people who are in the church. Verse 9, you know, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning all the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. He said, look, I'm I'm telling you not to associate with this person. Um, You're not the moral police to tell everybody in the world how terrible they are and everything they're doing wrong. Um, The reason... The reason we have moral boundaries is we believe that God created us. We believe that God had an intention in creating us and that his world has order and it has rules to it and we can follow those things. If someone doesn't believe that God made them, if they don't think that there's any sort of moral uh, absolute in the universe, of course they're going to live however they want. They're going to use their body however they want. So don't be shocked by that. Just, and don't, you don't have to go out and judge that because they don't believe the standard by which you're judging them. So stop it. Um, and, and you can't disassociate with everything, you know, every evil person in the world because it's really hard to do because there's a lot of it out there. And if you completely disassociated with that, you'd be this little subculture, you know, circle the wagons and don't ever go out there, which is, so it's hard to do, but it's also limits our impact because we can be a hope to the world. We can be a light to the world. So he said, specifically, this is about those who say they're brothers and sisters. They're part of this church, but living in a way that's just completely inconsistent with that. And that's why... um, you know, church membership, we talk about that. We have this discovery course coming up. It's important to say, because we are people who are committed to one another and committed to a way of life together. And that we are going to help each other live that way of life. So the first limit of the intolerance is, it's the, we're talking about you know, what you're doing in-house um, as a community in church, not the whole world. The second limit is, is to not go to the extreme. So we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And basically there was a situation, whatever the situation was, where somebody had been punished. Now, we don't know if it's the same, this 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I don't know if it's the same situation from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Probably not. I used to think it was probably the same situation. I, I, I don't think it is. But the point is um, that once... Once you do this, if somebody has sought forgiveness, we need to forgive. That there's limits to our tolerance, but there is no limit to grace. That we can extend amazing grace to people who, who have sought forgiveness. doesn't matter how bad or ugly or icky or whatever it was, however extreme it was, that we can just offer grace and welcome back into fellowship and, and, and demonstrate forgiveness to reaffirm our love for people. Um, forgiveness needs to just flow generously as it's flowed to us. Because as soon as somebody repents and they turn back that, then we're on the same ground. That's the ground I stand on. Turning from my sins, seeking God's forgiveness. Again, doing it imperfectly, 
but pursuing, pursuing what's right. So there's kind of your upper and lower limits. Um, God doesn't overlook sin. If God overlooked sin like it was nothing, then we could too, just kind of overlook it. But Jesus died for sin. God takes it very seriously, and he takes it upon himself for us that we might receive his grace. So, and when we, when we, by faith, when we accept that, what Jesus did for us, then we have this amazing position to be operating from a place of receiving grace, a whole new motivation to pursue what is right and what is good. Putting off the old self, its old sinful ways, and putting on the new self, which is being made more and more like Jesus. And when we allow the, the good news of Jesus to work itself out in our own hearts, this is what um, you know, worked on the heart of me, a sinner. It starts with me and seeing it in the lives of others. Um, but it does, it does limit what we're, you know, our ability to just tolerate anything, that we want to be a people together who are uh, pursuing God's goodness, pursuing his righteousness. Um, this time tomorrow... You'll feel it. Whenever, wherever we scatter from here, you will always be in places where you feel that you know, what, is, what you value and, and, and what you're pursuing is going to be different than maybe people you work with, maybe people you even live with, um, just people that you will interact with. But we are people who are pursuing the way of the cross, uh, the way of trusting Christ for everything, and we will be a light to a world who needs it so desperately. Let us pray. Uh, Father, I confess that this is difficult because I prefer to ignore the parts of my own life where I continue to fall short and struggle and um, perhaps to ignore it for others as well. But you've called us to be your children. You've called us to be like Jesus. It's a very high calling and only by your grace, only by your grace can we pursue it but you've given us every motivation, Lord. So help us to be a people who are growing in purity, who are growing in love, who are growing in forgiveness and extending grace, Lord. Give us wisdom um, to love each other well, to point each other on that same path, uh, and to, to receive your love. You have not left us alone in this. You have given us your very spirit that we might know your way. May your spirit fill us powerfully in such a way uh, to grow and to change. And that you'd be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.